0: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The short story Lost Hearts by M. R. James aired in 1973 as a short television film on bbc's a ghost story for christmas directed by lawrence gordon clark it was first broadcast on christmas day 1973. before we begin a quick note the story mentions hurdy-gurdy music and i had no idea what this was so according to wikipedia The hurdy-gurdy is a stringed instrument that produces sound by a hand-cranked wheel rubbing against the strings. The wheel functions like a violin bow, and single notes played on the instrument sound similar to those of a violin. This story is going to be split up into two parts, so tonight you'll hear the first part of this Christmas ghost story. So Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays! And without further ado, let's begin today's eerie ghost story. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Aswerby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house, built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added in the pure classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with a round window, crowned the front. There were wings to right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colonnades with the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall, in front stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy, who was standing in the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post chaise had brought him from Warwickshire, where some six months before he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live at Aswerby. The offer was unexpected because all who knew anything of Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr. Abney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Aswerby. Certainly, his library contained all the then-available books, bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine, and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon in fine as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Eliot much more that he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Aswerby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbors, it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you? said he. "'That is, you are not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper?' "'No, thank you, sir,' said Master Elliot. "'I am pretty well.' "'That's a good lad,' said Mr. Abney. "'And how old are you, my boy?' "'It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice "'in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. "'I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir,' said Stephen." "'And when is your birthday, my dear boy?' Eleventh of September, eh?' "'That's well, that's very well. "'Nearly a year hence, isn't it? "'I like, ha, I like to get these things down in my book. "'Sure it's twelve, certain?' "'Yes, quite sure, sir.' "'Well, well, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, "'and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is.' "'Yes, sir,' answered the staid Mr. Parks.' and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had, as yet, met at Aswarby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some 55 years before the day of Stephen's arrival and her residence at the hall was of 20 years standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly, there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens, which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the Laurel Walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hand? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. Welcome to Your Decisions Matter. In our normal episodes, you are asked to listen and make decisions using your skip button about fictional stories involving anything from nuclear bombs to time travel to aliens. Stop being told stories and start taking control of them. Do you decide to become immersed in this new interactive podcast? Please subscribe to Your Decisions Matter now on your favorite podcast app. Or do you decide to let others tell you how the story should end? Just don't forget, your decisions matter. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. Is Mr. Abney a good man and will he go to heaven? He suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions, the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. "'Good, bless the child,' said Mrs. Bunch. "'Master's as kind a soul as ever I see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back?' and the little girl, two years after I first come here. No, do tell me all about them, Mrs. Bunch, now, this minute. Well, said Mrs. Bunch, the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, and give orders to Mrs. Ellis, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with and the poor child had not no one belonging to her, she told me so her own self, and here she lived with us a matter of three weeks it might be. And then, whether she were something of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out of her bed before any of us had opened an eye, and neither track nor yet trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about, and had all the pawns dragged, but it's my belief she was had away by them gypsies, for there was singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went, and parks he declare as he heard them a calling in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, dear, an odd child she was, so silent in her ways and all, but I was so wonderful taken up with her, so domesticated she was." Surprising! And what about the little boy? said Stephen. Ah, that poor boy! sighed Mrs. Bunch. He were a foreigner, Geney he called himself, and he come a-tweaking his erdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and Master Adam in that minute, and asked all about where he came from, and how old he was, and how he made his way. And where was his relatives, and all as kind as heart could wish? But it went the same way with him. They're an unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose. And he was off one fine morning, just the same as the girl. Why he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after. For he never took his erdy-gurdy, and there it lays on the shelf." The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross examination of Mrs. Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night, he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old, disused bathroom. It was kept locked. But the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. A figure inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden color, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold, boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams were really there. It was not, and he went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover to whom he confided his experiences at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching as Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this had always been considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that Censorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. "'Gracious me, Master Stephen,' she broke forth rather irritably, "'how do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way?' Look here, sir, what trouble you do give to poor servants that have to darn and mend after you. There was, indeed, a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long, parallel slits, about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs. Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes, she came down. "'Well,' she said, "'Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can a come there, too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat, for all the world like a Chinaman's fingernails.' as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us of when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear. And just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, that's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can't hurt you. Herewith, Mrs. Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on a Friday night in March 1812. We will release the second part of this story in an episode coming very soon, so stay tuned and we'll see you on the next episode of Straight Up Enigmas.